introduce my friend Steve Fish. So Steve Fish, some of you know him, some of you don't know him. He pastored up at the Vancouver Vineyard for 24 years, he just said. He retired end of last year. Uh, he was also our area pastor, and so um, all the pastors would would come and listen to Steve, basically, and do whatever he said. Uh, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, so we're honored to have him. His wife, Lane, is back there, who's also awesome and incredible. Um, so uh, with that, I want to welcome Steve to come up and share with us. Kevin. Am I on? I am on. Wow. Uh, it's good to be here. Uh, we, Lane and I, uh, love this church. Uh, we've known some of you for a very long time, and uh, many of you, we've uh, had great times together in Nicaragua, and uh, I regard it a great privilege that uh, I got to be, Glenn asked me to speak here. He usually asks my wife, you see, and uh, <clears throat> I don't quite remember if he's ever asked me, so when he asked me, I thought, wow, what a privilege. So uh, I, uh, it's just good to be here. I'm, Lane and I, last month, uh, we had the opportunity to vacation in kind of rural southwest France, and it was this uh, incredible t- time. Uh, but I want to I begin this morning with sharing uh, a short story from that trip uh, that God really used to speak to me and, and really, in a very profound way, bring real encouragement to me. Uh, before I went on the trip, I'm, I'm the, I, I am this, the ultimate tourist, and so I do a lot of research about any place that I'm going, so I was doing a lot of research, and I, I found this uh, used book online, had been in a library um, somewhere back east, and it, it was a story about three families that uh, lived very close to where we were going to be staying in this rural area, and they had farmed uh, this land and made uh, wine for generations. Uh, one family went back into the 1700s, and they were on that same land, farming that same land, and making uh, these, producing really high-quality wine, uh, and these just absolutely beautiful uh, vineyards. And so I had to go and visit uh, those those vineyards. And so uh, we went to one of them, Claude de Gamal, and uh, we, uh, the, the owner of that, his name was uh, Yves, uh, he was a, this kind of short, portly Frenchman with this really big smile. And when we got there to, to the vineyard, uh, they called him and kind of summoned him. He was out in the, in the vines, and he shows up, and he's got this great big smile. He's this really friendly guy, and his teeth are just totally purple, you know. His teeth are purple, and his hands are purple, and he shakes our, our hands. And uh, he, I guess he had been out in the vines, and he was tasting uh, the grapes, to To know their sugar content, to know whether you know how far it was until harvest, and so he was doing that by taste, and so that's why he's all purple as he was. 
Uh, and I guess the harvest was still about two weeks off, so he had time to talk with us. And, and so he talked to us for quite a long time and explained to us that he, uh, he sort of was making, he, he had kept to the sort of old school traditions of winemaking that had uh, been uh, passed down to him, especially through his, his wife's family that had been there for generations. And, but he also explained to us that the market had changed considerably and that there was a, there was a consumer demand for different kinds of wines, uh, demand for wines that were uh, kind of less bold, uh, more fruity uh, wines that you could were made to drink right away, and that um, kind of more uh, consumer friendly wines. And so he said that the that the market, the most of the vineyards in the valley there were had kind of was accommodating that uh, market demand, and um, were using new sort of techniques, but but not Eves. Eves explained that that you know he was he was old school and uh, was really proud of the fact that he was making these very bold um, uh, Caor wine that could age for ten, fifteen, twenty, you know, more years. And um, but he but he also explained to us that that it was much harder to. Uh, to make wine that way and to farm the way that he was, and that it that it in in many ways it was less profitable, uh, especially in in the short run, and um, and I love these words. He says with that big purple smile of his. He says, you know, I could make industrial wines that would uh, be. Um, popular with, with to the masses he says or i could make wines for my pleasure and that big purple smile and so it was i i think it was the next day or a couple days after that i was having some quiet time and the lord really began to speak to me uh about that story and um and encourage me uh and what, what I saw there were parallels between Eve's story and his vineyard and the church today. See, there's, there's many people who would like to make following Jesus easy. And by that, I mean that it would be uh, not so costly, not so sacrificial, that it would be... Uh, that it wouldn't take so much of our time. There is, there is a consumer demand for a Christianity that uh, sort of can, can function on the, on the fringes of our life rather than consuming our lives. There is a, uh, a, a demand, if you will, for a, for a Christianity that majors on the benefits of following Christ, which are huge, uh, and largely ignores the costs. And so, but what God reminded me and encouraged me is that we have been called to an ancient way. 
we have been called to an ancient way of following Christ that was very similar to what Eve's was doing at Clos de Gaumont. See, in the vineyard, in the vineyard church, we take very seriously the, the call to make disciples and be disciples. And uh, both in, in our interactions with one another and with our, our relationship to those outside of the church. And, and by making disciples, I mean much more than evangelism. I mean more than, you know, by discipleship, I mean more than a program or Bible study or even mentoring, although all of those things are good things. Uh, and, and, and it's much more than sort of the therapies that, that are designed to, to bring us greater freedom in our lives internally. Uh, by discipleship, as, as, as I was thinking about this, was the, the, this intentional, progressive transformation of our lives to be more like Jesus, to be more Christ-like. And a major component of that transformation that's taking place in our lives is this journey going from self-centeredness to a self-sacrificing servanthood like Christ. And so that's what I want to talk about this morning. Jesus, as you know, was the ultimate servant. Uh, it was far more than just a characteristic, you know, one of the characteristics about Christ. It was his very nature. And so, uh, speaking about Jesus, Paul wrote this in, um, in, in Philippians, okay? Who, though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now, as many of you know, I mean, that's chocked full of theological significance. It's talking about the kenosis of Christ, the emptying of uh, Christ, uh, making himself nothing, which I have, we have, don't have time to get into that, even, even if I understood what that actually meant. Uh, but what is clear in that is that Jesus willingly chose to, to give up uh, some of his rights, the honor, and some of his prerogatives of, of God, as God, to take on human form and even the nature of a servant, okay? Even to the, to the extent of giving his life sacrificially for us. Now, that's, see, that's who Jesus was, okay? Uh, in Mark 10, this is what Jesus said of himself. He says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So that, that concept, the concept of servanthood, was, was something that Jesus um, 
he, he demonstrated by his life uh, and, and in his teachings over and over again. This was something that he, he emphasized. It was something that, that I believe that was really important to him to impart to his disciples. Because to be a disciple of Christ, to be a follower of, of Christ, means to be one who follows his example of self-sacrificing servanthood. Okay, so that that seemed to be a really hard concept for his disciples to get. I mean, we it, it, it's almost laughable the you know the discussions that that they would ha- his disciples would have amongst themselves about who would be the greatest, and and Jesus would always bring him back to that that idea that no, you, you don't get it. That the greatest is the one who serves not the one who promotes their own self-interest, okay? And so uh, in Mark 9, Jesus said this. He says, sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last, the servant of all. And so even, even down, even though that, you know, we, ha- we have these recordings of these different discussions, even down to the last, to the last supper, and Jesus is there with his closest friends, his closest disciples, they're still arguing about who is going to be the greatest, okay? They are still um, consumed with this whole thing of self-interest and self-centeredness and self-promotion. And so, again, Jesus kind of brings them back to that, guys, no, you don't get it. He says, the one, it's not the one who is served that is great, but the one who serves. And, and then he goes on, and you, most all of you know that story. Jesus goes on and, and washes the disciples' feet. And the reason that he said that he washed the disciples' feet is so that to set an example for them, that they would do the same to others, okay? Not that they would just be washing people's feet, but it was that posture, that humble service that he was demonstrating, this is what it means to follow me, okay? So, um, so a disciple of Jesus is, as he said there, the servant of all. See, that was the, the confession and the self-identity of the early disciples. I mean, Paul, over and over again in his writings, he referred to himself as the servant of God and the servant of the church and the servant of others. You see that? We read the same things in James's writings or in Peter's writings. See, and it wasn't just a personal conviction that they had, that they were servants, but it, but it spoke of the very nature of Christian community is that we were a servant community. See, when, when you go back, if we go back to that verse that we read in, in Philippians or that text, where Jesus was, I mean, where Paul was talking about Jesus as the servant, he, there's, before that, there's this admonition to the church, to the church community, to take on that very same nature. And let's read it in uh, verse 2. In Philippians 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from, 
love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And I, and I love that last verse in verse 5. Have this same mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. See, other translations say have this same attitude or the same attitude of mind. And see, which, which says it, it goes way beyond acts of service. It goes way beyond volunteerism, okay? And by the way, Glenn didn't ask me to speak on volunteerism, so you'd volunteer at the church um, on, on servanthood. Although I think you should, by the way. I think everybody should have a job in the church. That's how Christian community works, okay? But see, it goes, what, 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 what we see in the Scriptures is far beyond that. See, it's, it's, it's a mindset. It's a worldview. It's a, it's a way of seeing yourself. It's a way of how you see yourself relating to God how you see yourself relating to the world around you, how you see yourself relating to others. See, it's a mindset that understands that first and foremost, I am a servant of God, and secondly, I am a servant to all. Well, who's all? Well, all is all, okay? It's, it's, a, way, it's a way of seeing ourselves. It's an identity that is given to us in Christ, that we are servants, okay? And uh, it, it, if it's the DNA, if you will, that we receive by the Spirit of, of Christ that dwells within us. We've been given the Spirit, if you will, of a servant. But it is a natural. See, Paul writes in another place, he says, you know, all, all men seek their own interests, not the interests of Christ. See, uh, it's, it's, the, it's the spirit of Christ within us that's transforming us to put the interest of others before our own interests. See, naturally, naturally, many um, look out for number one, Right? You look out, naturally people look out for sort of number one, and then maybe in concentric circles it goes out to look out for your family, look out for your friends, and then maybe it goes on out further than that. But what Paul is saying is not in Christ. See, in Christ, you have a new attitude that is yours. You have a new motivation that is yours by the Holy Spirit that dwells in you, see? And see, it's living out of this kind of mindset, this kind of identity, this kind of uh, view of the world as that which I have been given to serve uh, causes us to act in a certain way. 
See, it, it begins with a mindset, and that flows into action, which the more we do becomes a lifestyle. All right? See, it, that mindset, that, that self-awareness that I am first and foremost a servant of God and a servant of others, see, it, it flows naturally into a lifestyle. See, the, the Scripture tells us that we're not to be conformed to the fashion of this world. That, that seeks to mold us in such a way that where 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 and tells us that self promotion leads to greatness, right? Self per, uh, taking care of number one leads to greatness, and that you win that you win when others serve you. Okay, when others meet your needs, your expectations, your wants. But you see, again, uh, Paul is arguing for a different identity, a different way of viewing ourselves and our lives and our place in the world. See, now, Paul isn't saying that we should never look out for our own interests, obviously. We wouldn't survive. We'd all die, right? But what he's talking about is value. He's talking about valuing other people to the extent that their interests really become important to us. And we'll take, uh, oftentimes, we'll take uh, preeminence over our own interests. Okay? And that's why I say it's an ancient path. I mean, who, who does that? Who, who, who actually lives that way? But it, it is, uh, it's an ancient path that, is as relevant today as it was when Paul wrote these words. That that's, that's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, to be a follower of Jesus, okay? But it is so inconvenient, you know? It is so countercultural. It messes with our lives. It messes with our schedules. It messes with our calendars. It messes with our budgets, and it's supposed to. So I want to suggest a few practical applications. Where we? I forgot to ask a very important question. Now? now? I'm done? Okay, okay, we'll close. Okay. It is... See, servanthood is a discipline. It's a discipline, uh, again, because it's not, not natural. And it's a discipline because it takes practice for it to really become a lifestyle. It takes an intentional practice in our life, practicing servanthood. And I, let, me, let me give you just a few practical ways in which that, that's done, okay? Um, Obviously, there's countless ways that we go about our lives serving others. But let me first give some ideas, and I, I draw from Richard Foster's book, Celebration of Discipline. Uh, and he talks about uh, a few of these things. And, and it's, it's a discipline 
again, because it does take practice. So the first thing he talks about is we can serve in small things. We're kind of prone to see, you know, big things and sort of overlook the little things. Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, talked about this as active helpfulness. It's the simple assistance in trifling external matters. Foster says that it banishes us to the mundane, the ordinary, the trivial. See, it sounds more glorious in one sense to, to you know, give our lives in martyrdom, but it is the daily death in simple ways where we put the interests of others before ourselves that is really the test of our discipleship. Francis de Sales wrote this. He said, The great virtues are a rare occurrence. The ministry of small things is a daily service. Large tasks require great sacrifice for a moment. Small things require constant sacrifice. See, so, it, so basically it's so simple. It's just having the eyes looking for the simple ways every day that present themselves to us where we can put the interests of others before ourselves, that we can serve, that we can be helpful. I mean, think of all of the, the, the countless ways every day that you husbands can serve your wives to put the, their interests above your interests, where your needs and expectations and wants take back seat to theirs, which would be true of our, with our children, with our co-workers, uh, every one of us that's a disciple of Jesus every day when we go to work, we have just endless opportunities to put the interests of others before ourselves, to serve others, okay? Um, a servant serves at all times, you know, uh, your co-workers, your, your students, your your, um, your clients, your, your customers. It's a, but again, it's a, it's a worldview that sees, well, that I'm placed in this world representing Christ to serve. Okay? Hospitality is another very simple way where we serve others. Who you eat with, it makes a powerful statement about who you value, who you respect. Who do you eat with? Do you eat with family, and then friends. See, hospitality extending out to strangers is, is a powerful way in which people are served, people are honored. Uh, and, and that can be the most simple things of inviting somebody for coffee, you know, or, or uh, inviting to somebody for lunch after church here on Sunday. Or, and most importantly, and I really believe strongly in this, inviting people into your home, you know, which could be just for a bowl of soup. doesn't have to be super special, but it, it, it says something that's really profound when you inv- eat with people. The other powerful way that we can we serve others is by listening. You know, everybody has a story to tell. But there's very few who want to listen, <laughs> you know, to those stories. You know, uh, and, and that's a learned art. Listening is a learned art. I, I, I find myself really guilty of this oftentimes. Somebody's talking to me, and I'm just kind of holding my tongue, waiting to respond, you know, to give them my advice or tell my story. It sparks, oh, yeah, I have a story like that, you see? But you see, it's a learned art where I, 
still myself. I'm, I'm your servant to listen and with, a, with a caring heart for your story. And you don't have to give advice. Matter of fact, giving advice often is the very worst thing you could do uh, as a listener. Um, bearing one another's burdens. Carry each other's burdens, and this way you'll fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ is the law of love. Love calls us to weep with those that weep, to, to rejoice with those that rejoice. It understands what it means if one member suffer, we all suffer. And I, I think, I, I only have a couple of minutes here, I, I, I think that one of the powerful ways that we serve one another is through intercessory prayer, um, where we bring the needs of others and the interests of others before the throne of God. And I think it's powerful when we intercede for others individually by ourselves, but there is something very, very powerful when we join together to intercede for the, for the uh, needs of others. Okay, and in my church, we have put a great emphasis on that over the years and found great uh, blessing in serving as we, we pray for individuals, we pray for our city, as they were talking about here, praying for our nation, we pray for our communities, we pray for our schools. It's a powerful way that we give our time and our energies to serve others. And then just simply sharing words of life, sharing words of encouragement, sharing prophetic words, uh, uh, taking the risk when you, you have a sense that God's giving you word. That can be a very risky kind of a thing, an awkward thing. My wife is amazing to me in that way, We're in public. She's, it's embarrassing. I, I just... Uh, we're out in public, and I can see it coming. I can see her eyeing somebody, you know, in the restaurant, in the, wherever we are. And I'm like, oh, no, here she goes. Okay, and then, then she'll, she'll give prophetic words to people all of the time. It's a way that serves. Do you realize that most people in this world get very little encouragement? Very, very, that, that never hear a real word of encouragement or uh, a, a acknowledgement of some good trait that they have. You work with those people. You know, they, they live next door to you. They never get a word of encouragement. It's a powerful way that we can bring the love of Christ and serve them is by, by looking for opportunities to give encouragement to other people. I, I think that that's uh, what we do as disciples. It begins with that mindset, that worldview, that self-awareness, that identity that we have, that I'm a servant. And it is, it, when, I, when I understand that and I live out of that, then it causes me to action. And as it causes me to action, then the more I practice that, the more it becomes a lifestyle. And then, as that becomes a lifestyle for me and for you, we do it together. And then in that way, we become a serving community. And I, I mean, I've always been blessed. You guys inspire me, your, your food pantry. Uh, I suppose you're raking people's leaves for, to bless them. I mean, all of those kinds of ways. The worst thing that I think could ever be said of a church is that it's irrelevant, you know, that it's not making uh, a positive contribution to the community in which it 
it lives and which it exists. And I, and I think that's the great challenge for us as a church, that not only are we called to be servants individually of one another and of everyone around us, but we're called to be a servant community to the greater uh, community. So I, I close with that. Um, can you do this with me? Let's, we're, did it, okay, 1030. But I, I, if you would do this with me, let's pray for Wally. Let's, uh, as a, a servant community, as a, as a community that uh, loves that man and knows that tomorrow he's facing a, a big deal, uh, we're hoping that it's a very little, little deal, but it is uh, a, a, a serious uh, procedure. And so let's, let's be a servant community. Let's pray. Mm-hmm.